Welcome to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Accelerate your success with insights from a multidisciplinary team of healthcare experts as they discuss an array of topics. These timely discussions can help you better navigate the challenges of running your ambulatory care practice. Here is your host. Hello, this is Dr. Marty Lustig, Senior Vice President and Principal with NextGen Advisors. Today, we're going to take up where we left off with our last podcast on interoperability. Having discussed the historical context spanning from 1960 to the year 2000, we'll now turn our attention to the last 22 years and spend a little time trying to look forward as well. I'm joined once again by my fellow NextGen advisor, Graham Brown, and NextGen's product manager for interoperability, Travis West. Welcome to you both. You bet. Thanks. Hey, Marty. Good to be back. So where we left off at the turn of the century, let's jump forward today to where we are at today. And Travis, I'll ask you to start with what's really the state of the technology as it relates to interoperability today? Before we actually get to today, if that's okay, I'd love to try to do a do a a, a, war, a ramp up to that spot because I think there's a lot that we can cover with respect to how did we get to today and where you know where does tomorrow get us? Sure. Uh, you know, in the early 2000s, it was it was pretty exciting. Uh, I I had actually just started my career in, in healthcare, and uh, my introduction to CCHIT. Uh, which is a, a predecessor for meaningful use, was kind of on the forefront. I had started to work for a, a small EHR, and we had just been certified with CCHIT certification as a, the, the first, I think, specialty in the country. And as a systems engineer at the time and later a product manager, I was able to learn a lot by participating on site with nurses and physicians in their private practices. It was my job to help uh, facilitate moving them from paper, uh, from from the old world, right? We've been talking about that in our last podcast to, to the new world where they're trying to use computer systems and how do they use those computer systems? So each practice was unique in its way in which it used that EHR or EMR at the time that it was called. And, and those systems that supported and the exchange of information. So a private practice, just moving information to, uh, to e-prescribe is, is, a, is a good example. It, it was a significant lift. It required uh, other organizations to have technologies ready to submit an electronic prescription. And, and it was just an interesting space for me to be in. Uh, as part of seeing the emergence, really, of technology in, in the everyday life of private practice and also at the hospital. Uh, certainly later on in my career there, uh, and, and maybe we could talk about that a little bit, about examples of in, in which uh, healthcare and the technology merged really, really well together and helped sort of facilitate some of the, uh, some of the results that uh, the private practice and hospitals wanted to see. I know that we uh, moved into meaningful use. I know Graham, you've you you have some experience and understanding of, about meaningful use and and where that uh, is just trying to get us as an organization. I don't know if you want to take a few minutes to talk about that. Sure. So you know the the intent of the meaningful use legislation was to have organizations demonstrate that all of the efforts that they were putting into in practice in capturing clinical data. Um, 
was in fact the right clinical data to capture, that it was meaningful in terms of the ability to measure cost and quality and utilization. And so there was a variety of different then kind of criteria put on how data needed to be captured, how it needed to be codified, and to the work that you've been doing shared with others to make that evaluation. So there were specific requirements of what technology needed to perform to meet those standards. I, interestingly, I myself in 2001 was working with the government of Ontario and was appointed to the Ontario Health Informatics Standards Council that was just to your point, trying to wrestle with how do we standardize and normalize data capture so that it can be shared and have future value across the healthcare ecosystem. That was happening in Ontario because it's a single payer funded system. So they were bringing all the partners to the table. It happened in the United States in a different way, right? Because we have a multi-payer system and all the various states involved, the federal government moved forward with initiatives like Meaningful Use to put in place kind of the approach and the structure that was going to bring all of those elements together. So it, it struck me that Meaningful Use was together with, I would say, the NCQA certification for patient-centered medical homes were really major drivers of EHR adoption particularly in ambulatory care across and primary care across the country, that the financial incentives to rapidly implement an EHR became overwhelming, particularly in the meaningful use setting, where if you didn't do it within a certain time frame, it became a penalty as opposed to a positive incentive. So it really forced the issue for providers so that the early adopters were already you know, in good position during that time. But for the, the laggards, they either retired or they had to <laughs> adopt. And, and I think those were really major factors in why, you know, 90 plus percent of ambulatory providers are now on EHRs. Graham, can you talk a little bit more about some of the regulatory changes that have occurred in the last 20 years that uh, have impacted when it comes to things like the ACA and the Cures Act? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in um, when we when we did our first episode on this topic, I talked a little bit about what was happening at the turn of the century and into the early part of the 21st century, where we had the passing of the Affordable Care Act in in 2010. the The Affordable Care Act did a number of different things in terms of setting up different models of care and paying for them and testing them in different ways, but they also put in place a whole variety of new standards and reporting requirements. So. One of the things created out of the Affordable Care Act through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation was the whole concept of accountable care organizations, where a group of providers would work collectively together to take care of the population of Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries in their region. And to do so, they needed to manage new concepts of, of information like attribution. So is this patient my patient? And how do we determine if that patient is my patient? Well, the writers of the ACA and of the regulations here decided that they would use evaluation and management codes. So the provider that provided the preponderance of evaluation and management over the last two years was determined to be responsible for the care of that patient. As a result, that patient became part of that provider's ACO if they participated in one. And that provider and all of their colleagues were responsible for reporting quality performance, whole variety of clinical quality measures, as well as cost and patient experience of care measures. 
So again, we go into this model where we've got a new way to pay for care. We've got a new way to test whether the care is of value and achieving its outcomes. But what comes with it is this whole new layer of technology and data points and reporting infrastructure that we need to develop and create an entire new ecosystem around to prove its value. You, you know, when you describe it that way, Graham, you can, you, I can feel how the clinical model and the business models have become so intertwined that it's almost impossible to talk about them separately anymore. You know, and you could contrast that with our earlier podcast of the simpler days of healthcare when they, <laughs> you know, they were structured in a way so that they had little impact on each other. Uh, it's, we're, yeah. we're, we've come a long ways, not necessarily everybody would say in a good direction, but we have come a long ways. Um, with right. that, Travis, I'm going to ask you to go back and uh, if you can uh, think about it from the perspective of the pandemic that really pushed the delivery system to lean much more heavily on technology because for a period of time, that was the only way to deliver care to their patients. Mm -hmm. So between virtual visits and the early uh, you know, remote patient monitoring that, that's been started to be included, how, how, have the, how has the pandemic moved the dial in terms of where we are technically uh, in terms of interoperability? You bet. Yeah. So thank you, Dr. Lustig, about t talking, uh, giving us the opportunity to really talk about how the pandemic has exposed failures, right, in the technology, uh, in the way that we look at data, the way that we leverage data, uh, not only in just in the, our, our, what I would say, standard healthcare settings, but into new settings with new technology being able to you know, reach out into a, into a physician's home to have a, a virtual visit with another person in their home. It's, it's a very difficult, it's seemingly simple on the surface, but a difficult thing to execute. When you think about interoperability, you know, as, as Graham was talking about the expansive nature of how to group information and, and drive policy that helps share information and exchange information. Um, alongside that, inter, you know, interoperability also is expanding. So when you think about interoperability to today, that includes things like data sources. It includes quality. It includes normalization and enriching the data. You talk a little bit about the delivery of the data and then, and then how, what do you do with that data? The pandemic really demonstrated in a lot of ways the silos that really that's happening in the healthcare organization and, and meaningful use as it's moved across into the Cures Act. And more recently, uh, the opportunity for us to see how information can be blocked. Uh, there's a, a lot of um, concerns around that. So we're trying to evolve and, and move the needle forward when it comes to interoperability from that point of view as well. And I think from, I guess, to the pandemic, uh, I, I can only reach back to my own history. When I started, when I worked for a, a small company who did uh, remote physician care, and some of the challenges you had was setting up the, the, the system that the doctor is using, uh, making sure the video was on, making sure the records that they were recording was it getting recorded in his private practice, but also traversing over to the hospital and making sure that the, the right diagnosis were hitting both systems at the same time. And, you know, it, it just, uh, you know, how do you make sure you get the right prescription from a, from a person who is in a different state, uh, even though you're trying to treat them or care for them? 
uh, as a credentialed physician in, in that state. So, so there's a, a, a wide variety of technical hurdles that you have to get through in order to to make all of that work. And, and I think there's a, obviously a lot of opportunities for interoperability to enable physicians and, and uh, business uh, teams uh, across the, the healthcare ecosystem to, to get what it is they're trying to get at. And you can see that through some of the experiences that I've had as working with claim data with large organizations that are processing large EDI claims, millions of records that are coming through. Uh, you can look at that through population health technology, mm-hmm. where you're looking at communities of, of uh, from, from community to community mm-hmm. and making sure that they're treating patients with the right information at the right time. And it seems like part of our challenge, and I think Dr. Lustig, you kind of referred to that earlier, where making sure that you're not inundated with just a sea of information, but being uh, given the right information at the right time so that you yeah. can make the right decisions. So I'd like to build a little bit on those last comments and just talk for a minute about how how clinical care has changed along with this. Uh, you mentioned a, a few of the things, but I think it's important to note how the ways in which complexity has continued to expand in clinical care One of them is advanced practice practitioners are now playing a greater role than ever, both in primary care and specialty care, and in many instances are now practicing independently from physicians, which creates another challenge around handoffs and sharing of information. Care teams also often include nurse care managers or uh, community workers or social workers as we begin to deal more directly with social determinants of health. Yet another layer of complexity. Some of those services that are being offered in that context are actually not subject to HIPAA rules. So that creates yet another new challenge. In population health, you know, if you think back uh, in our last podcast, we ended with the turn of the century. Very few provider organizations thought in terms of population health. Now it is a fairly routine concept, and and I would argue not enough, but many organizations have begun to adopt population health platforms and are beginning to learn how to use them to look at all of their patients at once rather than one patient at a time and to be able to understand the needs of their of the patient community that they serve even as they focus on each individual patient's needs. Uh, So that's a huge change in the clinical model for many. We all know that there's been a lot of work recently and the the movement towards CCBHCs from the government has propelled it forward of integrating behavioral health with primary care in ways that we hadn't were barely talking about 20 years ago. And finally, I think the the separation of ambulatory physicians, particularly in primary care from the hospital, is now virtually complete. Uh, there are very, very few primary care doctors who still round on their own patients in the hospital. Hospitalists, ED docs, intensivists are routine and expected in every situation pretty much uh, in today's world. So for me, that kind of brings us to a quick look at the future. So Travis, I'm gonna ask you, uh, you know, with all we've reviewed in, the, in this and the previous podcast, what do you see as the key opportunities in the technology space in the next two to five years? 
Yeah, it's really, it's, it's an exciting time. You know, certainly the pandemic has, like, like we had talked about previously, exposed us to gaps. And because of that learning opportunity, new clear directives on, on certain things like fire, uh, things like API integration. Uh, these are two types of technologies that help us improve in the way in which we leverage data in real time. Um, there's the need for a cloud tech solutions to, to continue to grow uh, in segments like uh, the life sciences, clinical research, payers, and digital health. Uh, the implementation and engineering services themselves will be tremendously complex as we continue to develop new and stronger technologies as the emergence of new scientific research and medical practices those specialties will continue to develop in those specific areas. I think in, with respect to a recent report from the Health and Innovation Alliance just this month, talked a little bit about uh, work that they had done with 30 different organizations in the country and made some recommendations back to the federal government. The feedback and insights included things like data at the point of care, the number of connected devices, HIPAA safe harbor for fulfilling patient access requests, patient-connected research, social determinants of health, and public health, all of which require interoperability to work very, very closely together with the overarching goal that, the like, like this health group, this group specifically asked, is to focus on the implementation and the potential problems that can be avoided by including provider training and and the burden of information that at the end of the day, uh, your peers, Dr. Lustig and, and Graham, the work that you've done in the hospital, uh, it, it'll fall back onto you. And it's, it's the responsibility of, of the rest of the you know, technology and technologists to make sure that we're, we're simplifying as much as we can so that you can actually use the information when you need it and where you need it. Well, it's clear from that, Travis, there's as far as we've come, there's still a lot to do, <laughs> and there's no going back uh, uh, based on uh, that description. Graham, can you talk a little bit, uh, again, using your crystal ball uh, from the business and <laughs> regulatory side, what do you think are going to be the most important things to watch? Well, I'll build a little bit on what Travis just said, because I do think that the imperative to transform and translate the enormous flow of data into intelligence and useful information at the point of care is crucial. And there's, you know, being able to kind of sift out from the noise what a provider needs to see at the right time uh, to really make meaningful clinical decisions is an enormous effort and something that we're all going to be focused on because because of the complexity and the volume that Travis was just describing. At the same time, you know, we all think of our devices, we reflect on the pandemic, how there are thousands of applications that we can now use to manage our own health, whether those are to track our own physical indicators, our weight, our blood pressure, whatever it might be, or to exercise more regularly, or to do whatever is going to motivate us around our eating habits, etc. There's this patient-derived data that is creating its own bolus of information, And I think there really needs to be a focus in the next several years on what's the utility of that information? Is it really for the patient's use or are there elements of it that the provider would benefit from seeing and tracking? And how do we intentionally discern what information is valuable, again, at the point of care and filter out the rest of it? 
at the same time, when we were talking about the Cures Act, you know, there's this movement and we've been trying to push it since the Affordable Care Act around price transparency. And how can we really understand what care costs within an ambulatory environment, within a hospital environment, at a health system? And how do we as consumers of care or the folks that pay for our insurance directly or indirectly understand where value is being provided, who's creating good clinical outcomes at a good price. There's a whole host of things that we can't see right now around the cost of care. We can't break it down the way we can break down the cost of a car and the cost of a muffler and the cost of a hood ornament. We can't do that in healthcare. So I think there's a continued pressure to bring price transparency and good decision-making around what is good care that's going to help us to ultimately get to that point of understanding who can deliver good outcomes uh, and at what price. So those are, those are some of my crystal ball ideas. Great. Uh, I think you, you hit on a lot of really critical areas, both of you, um, and we'll have to regroup uh, uh, to see if you are both right. <laughs> With that, I'd like to thank my partner, Graham Brown, and our special guest, Travis West, for sharing their thoughts on this critically important topic. Thanks also to you, our listeners, for tuning in. This is Dr. Marty Lustig with NextGen Advisors. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Never miss an episode by subscribing at nextgen.com slash podcast. To see a list of products and services tailored for ambulatory care practices, visit nextgen.com.